like to ask you to turn in your Bibles, please, to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, and this morning we are concluding this brief series of messages leading up to the Christmas celebration, which look at these two great prophecies of the birth of Christ found in chapter 7, verse 14, and chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. This morning we focused on that second prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. I'll be reading the first seven verses. Please give your attention to God's word. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light as light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There's an old proverb that says it's always darkest before the dawn. I've always wondered where that came from, how that ever got started, because it's not always true that it's always darkest before the dawn. Depends on where the moon is, what phase the moon is, cloud cover. It depends on a lot of things, whether it's actually darkest before the dawn. So I'm not sure where it came from, but I think that the proverb speaks to a deep need that is in all of us, a need for hope. We have to have hope every day of our lives. I think the proverb was begun, and it certainly is meant to express to people who are in difficult circumstances that no matter how bad it gets, there's hope. It's a recognition that we need that, especially in the darkest of circumstances. We have an innate need when we wake up in the morning to think, you know what, I think my classes are going to get better today. I think my career is going to get better. I think my marriage is going to get better. I think my parenting is going to get better. I think my financial condition is going to get better. We just have a need every day to think that no matter what the state of things is, that things are going to get better. We can't live without hope any more than we can live without bread or water long term. Except 
that if you're talking about life under the sun, in other words, life in this world alone, there isn't always hope. There's a website out there called despair.com. There really is a website called despair.com. And if you go there, you'll find a series of demotivational posters. And I'm sure you've seen some of these. They're parodies of the motivational posters you used to see in offices and business places. But there's one demotivational poster on that site that has a picture of a sunset, and it says under the sunset, it's always darkest before it goes to pitch black. (laughs) There's a poster for the pessimists among us. Well, when we left off last week at the end of chapter 8, you'll remember that things were pitch black in Judah and Israel. The people of God were divided, and God had sent his prophet Isaiah to bring a very difficult message to them. As you remember, the evil, brutal kingdom of Assyria was on the border, ready to invade the northern kingdom of Israel, the people of God in that divided nation, as well as eventually it would invade and destroy Judah, the southern kingdom. And Isaiah was sent to King Ahaz of Judah to tell him that because Ahaz and the apostates in Judah and in Israel had refused to trust in the Lord, had rejected his word, that God was hiding his face from his people. And we have the result of that described at those very last few verses we looked at last week. I'll pick up the reading at the end of verse 20 in chapter 8. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Thick darkness. The very image of the absence of hope. The whole rest of the book of Isaiah is really one long indictment, most of it, of the sins that had brought this spiritual and material darkness upon Israel and Judah. An indictment against their arrogance, their materialism, their lusts, their superstitions, their idolatry, even to the point of child sacrifice. And chapter 9, though, breaks into this deep, thick darkness with a brilliant light. It's one of those great moments in Scripture where all hope is lost, but God, in His grace, intervenes. Verse 2. What a great statement for the faithful remnant, those who still believed in the promises of God, who still accepted the Word of God. What a great statement for Isaiah to bring to that faithful remnant. The people who walked in great darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shined. In the art of storytelling, this is the moment of the big reveal. When the mystery is made clear. When the problem, the conflict, the dilemma is resolved. When the light overcomes the darkness. 
Last week we saw that no matter how apostate the professing people of God become, the visible church, so to speak, of the Old Testament or the New Testament, that no matter how corrupt it becomes, God always preserves a faithful remnant in the midst of that people. Isaiah spoke for that faithful remnant in verse 17 of chapter 8 when he said, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Faith in God's promise. The promise of deliverance is what sustains the remnant in in dark times for the people of God. Here at the beginning of chapter 9, God gives his word to Isaiah to give to the faithful remnant. Again, this is focused on the faithful remnant. And it answers four basic questions about this light that God is promising. First of all, where will will this dawn? Where will the light appear in the darkness on earth? Secondly, what will the light do when it appears? Thirdly, who will bring the light or who will be the light? And fourthly, when will that light come? And as we go through this, we're going to see that this is such an amazing revelation to the Old Testament church of the identity and the work of their deliverer, whom we know from this great vantage point to be the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who stood before the faithful remnant and the people of the world in his day and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So let's go back to Isaiah 9 and answer those four questions. First of all, where will the light appear? According to this prophecy. Notice that in verse 1, it places the breaking forth of this dawn of light from God, it places it in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, And then it goes on to say, the Galilee of the nations. Now, if you know your Old Testament geography, you know that Zebulun and Naphtali were two of the 12 tribes that were named after the 12 patriarchs. And the Naphtali and Zebulun were the two northernmost tribes. So if you have a picture of Palestine in your mind, if you know your Bible maps, you've got the Sea of Galilee in the north and the Jordan River that connects it with the Dead Sea at the south. If you think of the Sea of Galilee at the very northern part of the, of the kingdom of Israel and its height, next to that would be the two tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun to the west. I guess I should do it from your perspective, to the west of the Sea of Galilee. So those two tribes, if you think about the state of the nations at the time that Isaiah was given his prophecy, those were part of the apostate, the, the more apostate nation of, of northern kingdom of Israel. And those northern parts would have been at the brunt, the very first territory in Israel to be destroyed by the kingdom of Assyria because Assyria came from the north and the east. And so those people, those territories, were the first to come under the judgment of God for the apostasy and sin in Israel. From that point on, that region was never the same. From that point on, Assyria had taken the people of God and intermingled them with pagans, and from that point on, that part of of Palestine was known as one of the poorest sections, where poor people lived, a a place of of economic and material struggles, a place of, of 
constant battle between uh, borders between nations and a place of great apostasy in the sense that the people that were mixed in that area, they ended up with these weird philosophies and traditions and religions that were a mixture of Judaism and the, na- and the beliefs of the nations. To the point when, in the days of Jesus, that area that is here called Zebulun and Naphtali was known just more generally as Galilee. And Galilee was considered in the days of Jesus as the backwoods of Palestine. Isn't it interesting that then Isaiah says, even with that knowing what would come in the future, that Isaiah says that the dawn of the light that God would bring to the earth would be in the regions of Naphtali and Zebulun. This was the region, interestingly, and this didn't really even fully dawn on me. I've read this passage. I've read the New Testament many times. It didn't fully dawn on me of the significance of what Isaiah is told here. You think of Naphtali and Zebulun, that's the area where Jesus spent most of his life. Nazareth, where he was raised, his hometown was in the area that we would now consider, or that would have been Isaiah's day, been considered Zebulun. During his public ministry, the place where he lived the longest, spent the most time, was the town of Capernaum. Well, guess where Capernaum was? The territory that in Isaiah's day would have been called Naphtali. And so Isaiah is told exactly where the light would enter into the darkness of this world. Nazareth and Capernaum, Zebulun and Naphtali. And what, this is one of those things, again, it's so obvious, but I didn't realize. Matthew, when he wrote his gospel, understood this fully. Let me take you over to Matthew 4. He revels in the fact that Isaiah had been given this information in Matthew 4, where he's describing the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, just after Jesus had been Tempted in the wilderness, notice what Matthew says. Now when he had heard, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. That was powerful proof that God had been faithful to his promise. That the light had entered the darkness exactly where God had told Isaiah it would come. Be amazed at the geographic precision of the work of redemption and the plan of God. Secondly then, what will the light do? according to this prophecy. Verse 3 says that God will, through this light bringer, multiply the nation. And here, in this context, the nation is the true nation, the remnant, the faithful remnant, that God is going to multiply that remnant and increase its joy. He goes on to compare that joy, the joy of the remnant, when the light arrives, he compares it to the joy of a farmer at harvest time, in verse 3. And then also to the joy of a soldier as he divides up the spoils of victory after a great battle. I don't know about you, but if you're my age or younger, it's kind of hard to identify with that kind of joy, the joy of victory in a great and hard battle. 
The wars in my lifetime have not been pretty wars. They're all wars ugly, but the wars in my lifetime, you think of the war at Vietnam, the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, all of them have been messy. They haven't been brought to any kind of satisfying conclusion. And so I don't remember in my lifetime any great celebrations of the victory of a great battle, of good against evil. But my parents' generation knew something of that. Those of you who may have been old enough to remember VE Day or VJ Day, I am told that those were days of great celebration. Yes, that war was terrible. It was ugly. It was brutal. But the victory was sweet, and the celebration was great because an evil, a, a group of evil dictators had been overthrown, and oppressed people were free. That's the kind of joy that's referred to here. The joy of a great victory of good over evil. Verse 4 continues that battle theme and that victory theme where God compares that victory, that deliverance, to Gideon's victory over the army of Midian. If you remember the Old Testament story of Gideon being called to lead the people of God against the evil and great armies of Midian. Remember what the lesson of that battle was. The lesson was this, is, this battle is the Lord's. The Lord must win this battle. You must trust in the Lord alone to bring this about. And he did it by unique means. He, he had Gideon, who Gideon himself called himself the weakest, weakest man in the weakest tribe in Israel. But he had Gideon take his army of 32,000 soldiers and he sequentially basically reduced that army, God reduced that army down to 300 men and told him to go to battle against 100,000 or more soldiers from Midian. And God provided the victory so that Gideon and the people of Israel would know that God must win this battle. And so Isaiah says that when the light comes in the much greater battle to which this passage points, the battle is the Lord's. He would provide the victory. In verse 5, it has a picture of the battlefield after the victory has been won. And as I read that description there of the enemy's boots and blood-soaked garments being burned in bonfires to clean up the leftover remnants of a great and, and brutal battle, I'm reminded when I was able to go back a couple of years ago to Gettysburg and go through the museum there, I hadn't been there for a long time, and see those pictures of the battlefield at Gettysburg after that great battle was over. And the description here is just that, that idea that, that it's been hard fought and blood has been shed, but the victory has come and it's over. The war is over. What a joy. It's a unique kind of joy that you have after a great time of suffering and battle like that, that it's over. The prophecies of Isaiah, as we would proceed through the rest of the book, would increasingly make clear that these Old Testament battles, like the battles against the Midianites and the Philistines and and Assyria and all the battles that the people of God went through, that these were all foreshadowing a far greater battle, a far more important spiritual war. The war against sin itself the war against Satan, the war against death, the war against wickedness. And that's what victory this image points to. 
that one day the light would come and the war would be over. There is a Christmas song out there that's called The War Is Over. I don't know if you recognize the title, but it's the song that you hear all the time that John Lennon wrote. John Lennon was uh, a hippie. He had that hippie philosophy, all you need is love. And I've always marveled that he is considered a great songwriter. He wrote wrote great tunes, but his lyrics are laughingly, uh, you know, empty of any real meaning or significance. But listen to the words that he wrote in this song called The War Is Over. A very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Let's hope it is a good one without any fear. War is over if you want it. War is over now. That could be a great song if he was referring to the true war that Christmas celebrates, the victory. That if he was really celebrating the war that Christ came to bring, the Spiritual war, the war against Satan, the war against sin, the war against wickedness, the war against darkness being won. I'm glad we have our Christmas hymns that are full of that profound meaning when we sing about the war being over. Well, that brings us to the third question that's answered in this passage, which is who is the light? Who is the light? Verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. After all that talk about war and battlefields, you might expect some great warrior king riding in on a great white steed with a big sword and a shield ready to proclaim victory, but instead we're pointed to the birth of a child. This is the same child, obviously, that's referred to back in chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The light has come. Even more surprising than the location, the unexpected location of the dawning of this light in the midst of the darkness is the form in which the light would come. It would be a newborn son of a poor, no-name couple from the despised region of Galilee who would be lying in a feeding trough in a stable. But what a contrast to the names that are given to that child here in this passage. These names are not literally names that he was called by while he was here on earth, but these names, like many names of God in Scripture, they're names that describe who he is and what he came to do. The first name is Wonderful Counselor. In order to appreciate that name, you need to understand that we use that word wonderful very lightly in our normal daily conversation. Oh, that was a wonderful meal. Or that was a wonderful performance you gave in that concert. But that's not the, the word in the original Hebrew. The word wonder there that you get wonderful from in the English is the word that is used to describe the miracles of God. The ten plagues in Egypt, those were wonders. The parting of the Red Sea, those were wonders. Signs and wonders, that's what it's referring to. It's a display of the glory and the power of God on earth. He's a wonderful counselor. A very display of the glory of God in the midst of men. And he's a supernatural counselor. He not only gives wisdom, but he is wisdom. He is wisdom personified. He's, as John would put it, the Logos, the Word, 
the very expression of the truth, the wisdom of God, who was with God and who was God in the beginning. Or as Paul later described Jesus in Colossians 2, verses 2 and 3, Jesus in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the wonderful counselor. Secondly, he is the mighty God. I don't know how much Isaiah understood what he was saying there when he transmitted that word to God's people. But he's saying that this son, this child that's to be born of the virgin is going to be mighty God. That's why he was named Emmanuel, God with us. He was fully God and fully man. God became flesh and dwelt among us. Isaiah revealed that 700 years before it happened. Thirdly, everlasting Father. Now this can be kind of confusing if you think of the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, but it's not referring to the persons of the Trinity here. It's referring to a title that was often given to good kings, that they would be the father of the nation. The father in the sense that the king was understood to be the one who would provide for the people of the nation, that the king would be the one who would protect his people like a good and loving father. And so this son would be born to be king, and he would be a king who eternally provided for and protected his people. As Isaiah goes on to reveal, he would be the one on the throne of David and over his kingdom forever. That was the promise given to David. That one day, one of his line would ascend to the throne and would rule on that throne forever. And Isaiah says that this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, will be the fulfillment of that promise. He will be the son of David who rules forever over the universe. And then fourthly, here is the nature of that kingdom that he would establish. He would be a prince of peace. Not only would the war against Satan and sin and death be over, but he would bring about the shalom, the, old, the Hebrew concept of peace. Peace is not just the absence of war. Peace is the presence of God and all the blessings that go with that. Peace is the inheritance. It's the curse being removed. It's the earth being restored to the state of Eden with sin no longer being in the picture, with the effects of sin no longer being in the picture, with prosperity and well-being in the presence of God. That's why the angels declared when Jesus Christ was born, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The faithful remnant who had believed the promise. And I think I'm coming to a new awareness of how much that faithful remnant who were there to witness the very dawning of the light of Christ, who witnessed the birth of Christ, how much they really did understand these promises. We tend to think, well, they didn't get it. They said a lot of things they didn't really understand. They didn't really get it. Let me, in light of this prophecy and the revelation of that identity of the one who would bring the light, let me read to you what Zechariah the priest said when he heard about when, when his son, John the Baptist, was born, who he understood to be the forerunner of the Messiah who would bring this light. I'm going to read this prayer to you, but listen to it in light of the passage that we've been looking at. Listen to how much he understood 
that the son who is to be born to Mary would be the fulfillment of what Isaiah had promised in this text. Listen, beginning in verse 68 of Luke 1. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, speaking to his son John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. He is basically in that prayer contained everything that Isaiah revealed in his prophecy. He got it. He understood what the birth of Christ meant. Well, then that brings the last question, when? When would this dawn happen? When would the light come? As we said, Isaiah's prophecy was given to the people of God, to the faithful remnant, 700 years, more than 700 years before Christ was born. But did you notice as we read the first four verses that all the verb tenses there are past tense? As though this is something that had already happened? How do we understand that? Why did God give this prophecy to his people in the past tense, as though it had already happened? Well, this is an insight into prophetic writings that will help you in a lot of portions of Scripture to understand that in the Hebrew language, if you're talking about the Old Testament, if we're talking about an action that's been completed in the past, it's called the perfect tense. It's imperfect if it's not completed in the past, if it's something present or future. But if it's completed in the past, it's in the perfect tense. But in many of the prophetic writings of the Old Testament, you have what the interpreters call the prophetic perfect. The prophetic perfect is when prophecy is given about something that will happen in the future, something that God is going to do in the future, but you talk about it as though it's something that happened in the past. And the reason for that is to communicate the certainty that it will happen. It is as sure as if it has already happened. And the prophets will speak like that. And it's not just the prophets. The apostles do it too. There's a thing what I would, I would call the apostolic perfect. Romans 8, this is a very familiar verse. Paul's talking about our salvation, and he talks about things that have happened in the past, but he also includes things that will happen in the future, but he talks about all of it in the past tense when he says, those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. Something that will happen in the future, but he puts it in the past tense to say that because God is determined to do it, and he's promised he will do it, you can be certain that he will do it. That's what the prophetic perfect means. That's what the apostolic perfect means. It's as certain as though it has already happened. And verse 7 gives us the reason why we can be so certain. Did you notice that? The very last phrase 
of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's why we can be so certain. Because God is faithful. He is promised. And he never has and he never will break a promise. And isn't that the essence of faith? To believe that God is faithful to do what he said he would do. That when God says he's going to do something, it's as though it's already happened. That's how certain it is. That's how the book of Hebrews defines faith. Chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. God said it. That finishes it. It will happen. It will be done. For 700 years, Isaiah and the faithful remnant would continue to say, I will wait for the Lord and I will hope in him, just as he said said back in chapter 8, verse 17. That's what sustained them for 700 years waiting for this light to come. This divine and human child, born of a virgin, would come and do what Isaiah prophesied in chapter 53 would happen. He would lay down his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He would shed his blood. He would bear the wrath of God that our sins deserved in our place. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And by laying down his life, by dying for us, and then conquering sin and death once and for all, through his resurrection, he won the battle of all history. Sin, death, Satan were all vanquished. And having won that great battle, he ascended to the right hand of God. And he is reigning today on the throne of David, the son of David who has an eternal reign. And today what is going on, after having stood before his disciples, after his resurrection, after his victory, and saying to them, all power and authority has been given to me, he has gone to the right hand of the Father, and right now he is multiplying the nation, increasing its joy, increasing his government and his peace as his light spreads to the four corners of the earth and the darkness is put away through the preaching of the gospel. We can be certain that every one of his promises will be fulfilled. We need hope. We need hope to live, just like we need food and water. Especially in the dark times. And human beings, not just Christians, but human beings have a natural instinct when people are going through dark times, very difficult circumstances. We have an instinctual reaction to that. We come alongside them, we put our arm around them, we say, it'll be okay. But what if it's not? We can't guarantee that to anybody. I don't care what you're going through today. I don't know what kind of financial trial you're going through, what kind of health trial you're going through, what kind of relationship trial you're going through, what kind of career trial you're going through. I don't know what kind of dark circumstances you're facing in your life today. But I can't stand here and nobody can stand here today and say, you know what? It's going to get better in this world, in this life. For all I know, it may get a lot worse. It's not always darkest before the dawn in this life. Sometimes it gets darker. And the mistake is to put your hope in anything in this world and not in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's the only thing we're certain about. We're not guaranteed the next five minutes, 
let alone good circumstances or good relationships in our life. We're not guaranteed any of that. It could get a lot darker for all of us in this world. But every single promise that Jesus Christ has made to his church will be fulfilled. It will be accomplished. He has already won the war. The victory is already complete. And he said he's coming back to bring it to full completion. To make his kingdom on earth perfect. To do away with sin once and for all. To do away with death once and for all. To do away with conflict once and for all. To restore the shalom of the Garden of Eden. The presence of God in the midst of a perfected people. You can base your life on it because it will happen because God is faithful to his promise and the battle is the Lord's. Let's pray. Father, this is what we celebrate at Christmas. To the rest of the world, it sounds like trite cliches and religious mumbo-jumbo, but to us, it's the clear word of God that Christ has come, that he is fully God and fully man, that he has paid the price for our sins and has conquered sin and death by being raised from the dead and that he now reigns on the throne in heaven and we are the loyal subjects of his kingdom, forgiven, seen as perfect because we are robed with the righteousness of Christ and that we will live with you forever, no matter what we have to face in this dark world. Thank you for what you've done for us. We pray in Christ's name, amen.